Good evening, LCM family. <laughs> Today is Thursday, September 14, 2023. And we love the fact that we as a family, we're not content with reaching a self-determined state of maturity and success. I mean, something that just feels okay. Like I've done this enough. Now I feel good about myself. Now I can relax. Palatable enough for us to feel good about ourselves. No, not really. Instead, individually and collectively as a family, we have been actively pursuing the loftiest of goals. That is the character and actions of our God and His Son, Yeshua. Just this past Sunday, we were given bread of life from heaven that was intended to feed us for the years to come. Through it, our fathers in the faith and our good father highlighted the key aspects of his character that are to be found in each of his children who were created to bear his image and likeness. Furthermore, the pastors highlighted the vacancies that were being opened up in this body and that it would be sons and ministers who rise in the character and actions of our father who would be able to fill those shoes? Well, today, our message is entitled, Beyond the Basics. It is on this subject that we would like to begin our message today. In a job setting where I hear that there's a vacancy opened up, yeah. my eyes lighten up. All of a sudden, I feel a surge of energy and stamina, through which... My soul is contemplating the possibility that I might fill that vacancy. Yeah. To the desire, the desire for success and recognition is being empowered by my own selfish ambition. Yeah, it does. It's this ambition that makes me want to work harder and make sure that my boss notices what I'm doing. You know, that extra hour I put in on Saturday. Boss, I am available, I am capable, and I am willing. We can hear Jesus ringing in our ears, though. It shall not be so among you, out of Matthew 20, 26. It is because this is a reflection of the remnants of the world inside of us, rather than the new creation that we have been made into. Can you picture an axe, Matthias and Joseph getting extremely excited and giddy at the fact that there was a vacancy open in the 12 because Judas hung himself? Or... Even further, the prodigal son is desperately waiting for his dad to die so he can take his place. There's a reason that we haven't heard about these two men in the Gospels that are described as being accompanying the apostles from the very beginning. They were willing to work unnoticed. They were willing to be faithful when no one was looking. It's the beginning of the qualifications for why they were picked. And it's... Yeah, it sounds to me like they were not after a position. I mean, yes, they were shoes to be filled, but that's not what they were after from the beginning. With that being said, the wrong attitude when you know that there's a vacancy would be to set your eyes on that vacancy and wanting to fill it. Say it fact, with me, that would be wrong. Yeah. That would be wrong. wrong. Okay. In fact, 
if you have been faithful like Matthias and Joseph, not a lot should change in your actions. What? Rather, we should continue in our faithfulness. However, unfortunately, things do need to change in our thoughts and actions. And that is the reason why a sermon was preached on Sunday. The right attitude would be knowing that great men and fathers in the faith are drifting with God to new places. We, collectively as a single unit, as one body, should feel the need to rise to the character of our father and the fathers in the faith. And to take ownership of our body in the same way that they have. The right attitude would be to rise to follow God's pattern of creating order. So let's go to Ephesians 5.1 to get us started. Amen. Yes. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Enough said. Oh, beloved children, it is our deepest desire and ambition. Our deepest desire and ambition is not fulfilling vacancies. But it is rather our desire and ambition that in our vacant heart, we would be filled with his fullness. That the character of our God would become ours. Yeah. That the actions of our Father and of our God would become ours. And that I would have the same priorities and cares that he does. That we would focus on the goal and mission that our Father is focused on. And then we will naturally fill the vacancies because we will already be doing what those vacancies require. Come on. With this as our heart's desire, the inherent consequence is that the vacancies will get filled. We have a slide for you talking about the ministry pattern. Yeah, I think you guys missed the slide on Sunday, didn't you? I was hearing you guys and, and you were thinking eight, eight characteristics, six, mixing one and the other. And we thought like, we need to bring back a slide. I needed a slide. I needed a slide. <laughs> so let's put up this slide. I thought it was a good looking slide. Yeah, this is a good slide. Ministry pattern from creation. We're not going to reteach this because that ground has been covered. But one, we ought to be light bearers. Hallelujah. Two, we ought to be warriors. Yeah. Cultivators, man, signs that testify, complex and diverse, generational ministers that are sanctified in trust and rest. As light bearers, we're going to engage with each one of them and we're going to do it very personally. We're going to go deep into these and engage with what the Father was actually trying to get at us. So first John... Chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So when our father appeared in the creation story, light was the result. You understand that he did not, he was light in himself. Light is the result of him appearing in the creation story, and darkness could not overcome him. Another point is that no one actually begged them to shine the light. No one forced them. It's like, please, please. 
He took responsibility for his own creation and he shone his light and therefore darkness was divided. When you take that and apply it to ourselves, it means that we must be unmoved by the depth of darkness and chaos. The darkness that we see must conform to the light that is in me. There's a divine quality in light. That is, light does not try to be. You don't try to be light. Either you're light or you're not. And whether you're light or you're not is of whether you're a son of God or not. But do we have sons of God in this house? So if we are light, why is it that many times we try to shine? It begs the question, if you are light, why is it that sometimes we don't shine? Maybe it speaks of the lack of true revelation of who you are and who you truly represent. Standing on the conviction that the light of God is able to penetrate the darkest situations is something that we must truly engage with. We have seen dark situations. Every man of God, every woman of God in this place has faced the problems and has seen, I don't know that this is going to change. Like, I am in despair right now. I have tried, I've labored. It doesn't seem, I don't see the light. I don't see it coming. But in a minister of God, that is like a son of God, there is an unmoved determination inside of him that the light can come from him and the light can come from his brothers. There's a determination, there's a certainty. There's a revelation that even though you don't see anything right now, light is inside of you. And as long as you are in that place, light will shine. When we see darkness, we choose to respond. We don't, we don't try to, light, to, to shine. We are light, but we have an option. Are we going to shine? Because you can cover up yourself, put yourself under, under a basket, and hide the light that has been placed inside of you. So there is a decision to be made. But you don't try to, to shine. You just let your light shine. This is uh, something that, quite frankly, gets a little bit in the ethereal for me. So I like practical examples. When was the last time that you were standing in a dark room and you flipped on the light switch and you heard, ah, light. The light didn't have to struggle to cast out the darkness. In the very same way, when you are thinking that you are the light of the world, this is the choice of whether you will act in the revelation that God has given you that you are his son or you will choose to abdicate it and hide, but it's not an efficacy of the light itself. The light will always do what it does. While we're talking about this choice, we wanted to wrestle with for just a little bit what happens if you choose not to. And we will do this in each of these steps as we're moving forward, some more explicitly than others. But first, if you choose not to be the light, if we don't have a distinction between light and dark, then we have no distinction between the living and the dead. We have no distinction between righteousness and wickedness. And if we don't stand on the conviction that we are the light, we no longer have day or night. Have you been in a situation where instead of overcoming with the light, you let yourself get mixed? And then you were very concerned because you desperately want to represent him, but you no longer know what it is you should be doing. 
this is what is at stake. How about when you know that the light of God is in you, but you don't take ownership of it as God's creation? You know, that guy is not my problem. Yeah. I may have said that once or twice and thought it many more times. You turn a blind eye because you're too lazy to engage with the issue. Or since it's not your wife, it's not your children, it must be someone else's responsibility. I know it's not just me who's been in this situation. It's not like he's given the earth to man, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we are... It gave him something pretty interesting. When we get mixed up with the darkness... We no longer know what to do. And we've been in these situations. I've been partly desiring to be in the light, partly deciding to be in the darkness. And what happens is that I have no discernment whatsoever. I could be, I'm, I'm, it's like I'm walking blind. I have no power. I say the things I shouldn't. My heart is in the wrong places. There is no, the light cannot get mixed with the darkness. It actually dispels darkness. And if it doesn't, then you're not really letting your light shine. We, uh, our second point is warriors. And let's say it, warriors. Warriors. So let's go to Psalm 45, verse 3. It says, Gird your sword on your thigh, Almighty One. In your splendor and majesty, in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. This is speaking of the shadow and type that was David. But we can also correctly apply it to Yeshua as the perfect fulfillment of this warrior. A warrior that with a sword on his thigh rides as a mighty one in all the splendor of his majesty. Notice that he has all the splendor and majesty and he's fighting for meekness. He does not ride out with the hopes of winning a battle. Like, I strap my sword, and I'm going to see if I win. I mean, let's, let's give our best here. But our king doesn't make threats. That's true. He makes promises, Justin oh. Linton. So instead, he rides out with victory assured. He does so for the cause of truth, not for his own causes. He does it for the cause of meekness. That is power under submission. And he does it for the cause of righteousness. Men. God placed men. Where did he place men? In the garden. Was everything okay at the garden? Ha. Huh. Did you listen to Sunday's sermon? <laughs> no, it was not. There was a battlefield there already. The sons of God that you can read about in Job, they were already there. Powers and principalities were already there. Darkness needed to be subdued. How do you subdue the earth if there's nothing to subdue? There's something to subdue. There's dominion to exert. No, it was not okay. There was darkness and that's why God began to work at it. Man was placed in this, in this theater of warfare. Man was placed in a scene that was already at war. Why? Why, was, why did God do this? Have you ever thought of, man, why is everything so dark around me? Like, man, can, it, can life be a little easier? It's so hard. It, it, it's turning very dark. The world is so dark. Things are going so bad. The president is really bad. And 
Man is God's solution to enforce his shalom. The reality of the Genesis story is that man did not enforce God's power to enforce shalom. But instead allowed sin and chaos to enter. But now man is still the solution to restore that shalom. And this we do by waging war. Let's talk about spiritual warfare here for a second. What is spiritual warfare? Well, we want to start with saying that spiritual warfare is often uh, way too focused inwardly. And we spend way too much time thinking about ourselves. Man was the solution to the problem, not the problem. Come on. Spiritual warfare is the war that is waged in the domain between a man's soul and body. The battle is not to subject your soul. That's already subjected. We learned this in marriage counseling. The war is, who is it going to be subjected to? So we will get into some of these as we go with the more uh, intimate, I'm personal examples. But if we start with, it's a battle for control and subjugation. There is a very real-world principality, very real-world scenario that we are enacting with all of the time that wants to beat you, that wants to win. And before we get into the personal examples, we want to again focus on the fact that you were the solution to that problem, not the problem itself. We must learn to wake up to spiritual warfare and it stop being just about our thoughts, just about our feelings, but subjugating the spiritual powers that are attacking us to the kingdom of God. Have you ever said, I am fighting my thoughts? That sounds like a house divided to me. Are you fighting? You're, you're fighting yourself. Spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. It's fighting for the dominion of your soul and your body. It's fighting for the dominion, not only of your soul and your body, for, but for the dominion of others' souls and bodies. Is the word that we engage with the, in, the, in the theater of warfare that God puts us in. When God put us in, he did not put us to, to, to wrestle against flesh and blood. In the garden, they were not wrestling against flesh and blood. There were spiritual principalities at work. And they were not fighting themselves. They were the solution to the problem. Isn't that enlightening when you think about what are you truly fighting for? And what are you truly fighting against? There is a battle between kingdoms in this place. When we're looking at our soul and, and what is in our body, and what is it really submitted to? We can truly choose. Am I submitting to the spirit of God or am I submitting to the spirit of the world? Am I submitting to the prince of peace and the spirit of God? Or am I submitting to the prince and power of the air that is at work in the sense of disobedience? Who am I submitting to? This is a battle between kingdoms. The kingdom of God expands when spiritual principalities are dethroned and evicted. Because the sons of God, who are called to be warriors, wage war by placing themselves under the rule of the spirit. And also engage in war to bring captives, plunder the kingdom of darkness, and bring them into the kingdom of God. That is when the kingdom of God expands. You place yourself under the spirit of God, under his submission, and what happens is that he doesn't leave you alone. He then takes you on a war-conquering path. Yeah. The kingdom of God shrinks 
when sons of God either go back and make alliances with the enemies of God, or where the sons of God abdicate the responsibility to rescue slaves, to empower them by the Spirit and by the Word. There is either a shrinking or there is either an expansion. And it all has to do with how we engage with the spiritual warfare. If you're fighting those yourself, you're already losing the battle. Yeah, he said a lot there. Say it with me. I am not the problem. I am the solution. We need to adjust our thinking. We need to correct the way that we engage in warfare. This is one of the foundational truths that has, this ministry has been founded on. And it, I have to say, in my own life, it's very lacking. I fight with my thoughts. I fight with my emotions. I fight with this overwhelming feeling that the last thing I want to do in the world is go to another meeting. And I sit and think about me, 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 me. And I forget that we have a war of kingdoms and that if I am a light bearer and a warrior like my father is, then what I'm engaging with is an enemy, not some internal emotional teenage girl wrestling I need to have. We need to wake up and go to war with these kingdoms. So what does it look like? Who will win the war for your heart and your eyes? Mm. Will your soul and body choose to be submitted to the spirit of the world that covets and lusts after the things that it wants? Are you engaging in being trained? The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. How the first, church, first century church was prepared. So... Who has dominion over your eyes? Ask yourself that question. Who has dominion over your heart? What do you find yourself coveting? Because again, we are telling you, the problem is what are you placing yourself under? What are you allowing to control your thoughts, your emotions, and ultimately your body? Because every time in the world, you're going to be exposed to things that you did not want to see, you did not plan to see. But you choose to see them sometimes. So in that moment, what did you submit to? Certainly it was not the Spirit of God telling you to see things that you should not see, touch things that you should not touch, covet things that you should not covet. Certainly it's not the Spirit of God, right? right, right. The Spirit of God actually brings you freedom from those things, empowers you to say no to ungodliness. The Spirit of God actually gives you everything that you need for godliness. Through the knowledge of Him, by the way. Yeah. The Spirit of God is your best friend to empower you to live a godly life. And so when you see things that you should not see, it's training you. It's training your body. Like I said, it's training your neck to look the other way. It's training your heart to say no to those things. Because you're placing yourself under the submission of the Spirit of God. And that is waging war. Yeah. That is spiritual warfare. Submitting yourself to the Spirit of God rather than the Spirit that is in the world and at work in the sons of disobedience. Are we forcefully taking dominion over that which has been entrusted to us? You know, forcefully driving spiritual darkness or spiritual influences that try to take control over my family. Like, I don't know how we got where we got but it was certainly not because the Spirit of God led us here. 
At what point did I start submitting myself to other spiritual influences that put me in such a hard place? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There is a war to be trained to for. And if laziness and comfort is your God, we have, we have lost the battle before we even started. The Jesus said that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So when we are tired and we're choosing not to be trained for righteousness, if we know that we know where we need to be to become the men of God, the ministers of God that we need to be, that in itself is a battle. That in itself is waging war. When you decide, no, I am being trained, and I am being trained for war, but the spirit is not willing, you have to realize that is a spiritual battle. It's not I am tired. It's not I haven't slept. It's not I have my period. It's not none of those things. It is the fact, it is the fact that you are not clinging to the, to the spirit of God that empowers you to wage war and win. So are we forcefully taking dominion over that which is not yet yours, but is supposed to be? You know, some, sometimes I feel like we, we feel very responsible sometimes for our wives. And all I hear us talk about is our wives. And that's a great thing. I mean, you love your wife, right? I do. Take dominion over your wife. Take dominion over your children. Right? But then that, like, that's your capsule. Like, there's a world out there. I mean, yeah. church, our congregation is amazing, but it's full of light, I would say. Yes. I mean, where you shine the brightest is where there's actual darkness. And, and we refine each other, we purify each other, we, we expel the darkness that is inside of us. But let me tell you, there's a very dark world that we try to run away from many times. Which is to fellowship at the places that are the brightest. Which is to be at places where we, there's only light. And so we choose to be around just, we're not waging war and we're not taking dominion of that which is supposed to be ours. We're encouraging you. There's a, something that has been put under your feet. Something that you have been given dominion for. But then there's also areas that we must conquer. Places, cities, people that we must go for. There is an expansion process, and we are taking dominion over that. It's almost like you're blessed when you're persecuted. But we will also fight as hard as humanly possible to not be in any situation where we could be persecuted. We're going to move on to cultivators. We're going to start with Proverbs 11, verse 30. Say beyond the basics when you get there. The, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Our father is a perfect example of a cultivator. He saw me as a man bearing rotten fruit, and yet he saw value in what I would become and what I would produce. So he got to work. Yeah. He planted a seed. He planted the word. He was and continues to be incredibly patient and steadfast. He was as the righteous one intends. I'm sorry. 
What he as, as the righteous one, I can't say it, intends to produce in me is a tree of life. We're going through the process of the Father in my life. The time you heard the word, and it began to grow, and then he watered it with every word of encouragement that Nick gave you that you didn't know that you needed and was in a passing comment on, on a Tuesday. He continued to be patient and do it again and again because he intended to produce a tree of life that would be life for others. And just like with Adam, to cultivate him, he also gave me things under my care that I needed to cultivate, specifically things that would be difficult to cultivate. Because with Adam, when everything was perfect and everything was easy is when he found himself in sin. When the king of all creation gave him something to cultivate that, well, he quite frankly said was going to be difficult in more ways than one. What he began to see is that she would be the mother of all the living. He began to have future, a future view and learn to cultivate himself. This is, a, this is a bit funny. Adam was told that he had to work hard. I mean, sweat. But he was also assigned an easer that, quite frankly, he said would try to control you that you must rule over. That doesn't sound like an easy task to me. Not at all. Yeah, no one wants to amen that one. It's okay, I'll take it. It's true. <laughs> Some men like to complain about this task. Not realizing that it was the design of God that you undertook a difficult task because it was made to build something in you. When God decided to cultivate man... He gave, them, he gave him somebody to cultivate. It's, like, it's almost like God wanted to create in Adam the same man that God is himself. <laughs> a strong wife is a blessing. Yeah! The solution is not a weaker wife, but a stronger husband. Come on! One that is not intimidated by his wife's strong qualities oh, yeah. and her strong opinions because he is strong and secure in his own identity and sees her strength as a capacity to be directed in the right way. Oh, talking like a man, bro. This is a little bit like someone buying a Ferrari and being mad at it that it's powerful. What, what happens when you see somebody wreck a supercar? We don't blame the car. We blame the driver. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing. <laughs> a cultivator is not intimidated, not detracted by the present reality of something that he cannot see. A cultivator by essence takes something that is a seed that doesn't look like anything but garbage. I mean, you could trash it. You could not even notice it. And a cultivator makes it works for it, and brings life out of it, life that feeds others. A cultivator sees the potential in something that people would throw away and bring something not only beautiful, but valuable and life-giving. And this, because he had actual vision. This, because he was not taken aback by the difficulties and, the, you know, 
oh, why must I do this? And my wife is so difficult and strong, and I am such a mess and whatnot. <laughs> he actually had vision for what he must do and for what she would become. And the uncomfortable tension between what currently is and what we are called to be, that man actually handles well. That man actually has a heart that is faith-filled. And he's able to see, I am going to labor until this happens. I am not going to rest. I am, I am going to pour myself out. I am going to water. I'm going to till this land. I am going to do everything that it takes to make this seed produce fruit. Amen. There is patience and there is endurance that is required to produce this fruit. And so this man, this cultivator, he exemplifies the character of God. And not only the character of God, the ownership that God showed of his own creation. Because he, you, you realize that he, he, he had, his character is demonstrated in his actions, but he also took ownership of that creation. That cultivator, he knows that God is sovereign, and he knows that he did not flippantly place him in a garden to do nothing. He did not flippantly place me at LCM to do nothing. He did not flippantly put me in a, in a, in a family or at a job to do nothing. I'm, on, I'm not alive for, by, by chance. The Father is breathing life into me day by day that I would cultivate something. I have a job to do. I have life to produce. And there's more life to be produced from those that are coming after. You know that hypothetically... <laughs> Imagine that a man now has to live with his in-laws. And imagine that it's not just his father-in-law, it's his mother-in-law, and it's his sister-in-law. Hypothetically. Just hypothetically. Now, I'm not talking about me. But I started, you know, I, and, and a strong wife would call you out, right? The strong wife will call you on your bitterness. The strong wife will see, man, this is not the guy I married. What changed? Oh, my in-laws are here. That's what changed. <laughs> That's a blind man not realizing that you have been given something to cultivate. That's a blind man not knowing that there is precious seed in every one of those individuals. And I'm being dumb and stubborn not seeing ahead of why the father gave them to me. I didn't ask for them, but did you ask for anything that you've received? I mean, the Father's been good enough to give you more than you've even asked. You didn't know what to ask for. A man that is a cultivator is able and is willing and is desiring to work the land. He does not shy away from these difficult circumstances, from the stretching circumstances. He realizes that God is sovereign and he did not flippantly give him what he has right now. It's not about our feelings. It's not our preference. It's not our comfort. What are you alive for? Is it for comfort, your preferences, to get along and to do whatever you want? I thought I was alive to worship. <laughs> you know, many times we avoid this kind of cultivation work because we honestly don't know if we will reap. Oh, yeah, you can say that again. <laughs> yeah, we don't know if we personally will reap after putting all that work. What am I getting out of this? Is there any glory? I'll work really hard as long as I know the pastors will see it. Yeah. 
I'll work really hard if it makes my life easier. But those areas that I'm not sure, you know, there's visitors or, uh, you know, somebody that needed help. I, I don't know if I'll get the glory of that. So I guess that's somebody else's problem. Yeah, no, let's just, let's just hang out around places that we're sure that people see us, that we're sure that the work gets rewarded and that we reap. Because what we want to do is not really cultivate. What we really want to do is reap. I don't want to fish. I want to catch. That's it. I want, I want the work done. I want to be able to feel good about myself. And so it's difficult to actually place ourselves in, in a situation where you just must labor in faith. Completely in faith. Yeah. You don't, you're not, I mean, in the flesh, you don't, you don't know anything. You don't know that this is going to happen. But you're seeing beyond. Actually, Abraham did not even receive the promises and he labored. That is a cultivator. That is yeah. a cultivator that's following after our God. We're going to move to signs that witness. Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 2. Beyond the basics when you get there. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. God made Abraham and Sarah to be signs and symbols for the generations that they could see and they could look back and see the workmanship of God. These signs, well, they witness of God's workmanship. Abraham was one when he came so that God might be able to multiply him. These signs witness God's workmanship. Man is the glory of God, testimony of what God produces. Woman is the glory of man. She is a testimony of what that man can produce. Abraham and Sarah, they were a sign of God's workmanship because they are one. Man functions as the sun, woman as the moon. Together, they serve as signs and symbols for God's creation. In the beginning, he created them male and female in his image and in their likeness. It turns out that God's workmanship isn't, uh, well, it's not just about being a good husband. It's about being a good couple. It's about being a good family. It's about being a godly, not good nation. Both in unity are necessary to represent the Lord. This is our marriage counseling. We know these things. But how many of us would be thinking about, look to the rock from which you were cut and forget the quarry from which you were hewn? How many would look to Abraham, their father, and forget Sarah, their mother? Not even Abraham was called out as just one man. He was called out as one with his wife that they might be able to produce a nation. These signs and symbols are necessary representation, and both in unity are a necessary representation of our God. Come on. Look to Abraham and look to Sarah. Well... You can read that in the scriptures, but we will tell you, look to your brothers and sisters around you. Look to your pastors and the pastor's wives that have gone ahead of you. 
Luke 2. You can, I could mention every pastor and every elder. So I'm going to focus just on one. Let's look at Eric and Jen and see what they have produced. Look at the work product of their lives, which is the work product of the workmanship of God. Look to them and see where you were cut. See if you are part of that stone. See and look at them as signs and symbols of what the life in the kingdom is aimed to produce. And then follow it. And then imitate it. You heard at the beginning, imitate God as beloved children. Well, what do you consider yourself in this place? An attendant? Do you consider yourself a bypasser or one that comes to services only? Or do you consider yourself a son? A son and a daughter that looks to their fathers and say, I am cut from this stone. I am cut from this rock and we will follow. We look also at brothers and sisters. You can look at Steve and Joyce. Yeah, you can. You can look at them and see a man and a woman that are establishing the kingdom of God by actual warfare and dedicating themselves to elevating to the positions, not the positions of churchianity, but the positions of sonship that God has called them to be. You can see a man and a woman that are working together to establish shalom and cultivate their home. You can look at a man and a woman like Chris and Joy. And you can see a family that is being built up by the Word and by the Spirit. You can see a family that, that is planting seeds and is not getting tired of watering them. You can see a family that now has a father that has come to see the faith that his son has. You can see families that are building and you can look at them as symbols. You can look at the biggest sign in this place which is called the Spencer McLean. Yeah. And you can, see, you can see how his faithfulness and the faithfulness of who else? Of who else? Of Randy. Of Randy McLean. You Come can on. look at the man and you can look at the woman. And you can see what their life is producing. Hallelujah. And use them as symbols for the workmanship of God in our lives. It wasn't in our notes, but I feel moved. While we're talking about the signs and symbols that are couples, I'd like to just take a moment and point out our kibbutz wives, <laughs> Sasha and Sam and Hannah. I got to live with them for six months, and to say it was rocky, uh, uh, my part would be to say it nicely. But what I got to do is I got to see what these kibbutz wives are doing on the like 45 minutes of the week that they don't have 40 people in their house. We would not be able to function, and this ministry would not exist as it is, and I would not have the discipleship that I do if it was not for those three women tirelessly working. Look to the quarry. My wife, every wife in the room, and all of the single ladies can look to that quarry from which they were cut and find very, very good examples of what any husband should be looking for and wanting to build. And I, well, I have the microphone, so I wanted to say it. You can look at the mothers, you can look at the fathers, you can look at every person in this place and look at how they're persevering with joy under pressure. You can look at how they're persevering in the holiness of God and standing firm in the midst of darkness. And you can use them as the signs and symbols that our God has given us to take comfort and to see that is the workmanship of God. That is what He produces. 
and he does not stop doing so, and he can do that for you as well. We as a body and as men are also called to be complex and diverse. Blondie and baldy. Where are you at, Timo? <laughs> Let's go to Romans 8, verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Come on. Mm. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Hallelujah. So, honest question. What did you think about when you read this verse? I thought about me. You thought about yourself. Yeah. I mean, the truth is that, yes, we are sons. Of course, you're a son. I am a son. And so the tendency is to think about ourselves. You know, the firstborn, the original firstborn is called Israel. Yeah. A nation. A nation, not a man. A nation. A nation and a body of people. And then this becomes true of every member that is united to the one nation that is found in Messiah. We're all sons individually. Praise God for that. But the fullness of God in all of his complexity can only be attained when we learn to value each other as an essential part of the body. We honor and value each part. Think about Peter, Paul. Think about James. Think about John. Think about their epistles. They're all different. They all express a character inside of them, but they're all also expressing the fullness of God. Yes. John relates to certain things strongly, like the light and the love of God. Peter relates to other aspects strongly as well, like the coming, like the coming, and like the coming all the time. You can relate to James in a very practical manner. They are all expressing the fullness of who God is, and what would we be without any one of their epistles? What would we be without any one of our brothers in this place? We ought to learn to actually value. And you know what happens when you value? It's called honor. You elevate the difference. You elevate the fact that he doesn't just think like you, do things like you, speak like you, come from the same country, have the same haircut, whatever. You actually value the difference. You know that the difference is supposed to refine you. Amen. You, you actually realize that he is as part of the body as you are and it actually causes you to value that part of the body more than you value yourself because you know yourself very well but you don't know your brothers as well so you start valuing the differences you start valuing how they think you start valuing actually what they stand for and what their convictions are yeah. and you actually search them out and you go for them you value that difference instead of exalting your own value above them we embrace each other. We embrace the differences. And we call us to be unified. Because the body is the, the complexity and the fullness of Messiah and of God is only supposed to be reflected as every part of the body is actually unified and doing its part. And you know what? The actual proof of whether we believe this, because we have preached this in many sermons, the actual proof of whether we do believe that we value uh, each one as an essential part, it's only in the pudding. It's only in our actions. It's only in whether you actually, you actually honor, you actually bring out 
that which is in your brother and you stop putting your brother down. If we can take a minute just yes, on sir. that point. If you genuinely believe that you could not possibly accomplish your calling without the person sitting next to you, how hard would you work to see them succeed? It is our litmus test for how much we believe that we are the body of Christ. Truth is, is we spend a lot of our time really focused on ourselves. And if someone is inconvenient to me, then I will help fix the problem I don't like about them. That is really what we find ourselves doing. If we can sit and recognize that none of that happens without every single person in this room. And we can lock arms and it's going to be hard, it's going to be rainy, and it's going to be a tough day. But there's not a chance that we won't make this together. If we can begin to push through these and operate as a nation, if we can elevate our thinking above just a man or a family, but as the nation of God, we can fight an actual war. And this is what we are aiming at with elevating our eyesight in this. We're also called to be generational ministers. We're going to go to First Chronicles 22 verse 5. And we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. We're, we're having too much fun. My bad. Verse 5. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. And the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent. Of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. David had a desire to build the house of God. We know that he was not, we know that he was not able to do so because he was in God's assignment for him. However, he labored to prepare Solomon to accomplish what he could not accomplish. And praise God that he did. Otherwise, there would have been no temple or kingdom as established as it was during Solomon's reign. David had a vision. David had a vision for his son Solomon. And Solomon was prepared and he got the job done. However, Solomon did not have vision for his own sons. And they did not get the job done. Just the opposite. David worked hard to entrust Solomon a unified kingdom. However, Solomon's sons divided this kingdom. My first act as king of this nation is to divide it. So as great as a king that David was, he may have mastered six of the qualities that we're talking about today, these principles. But in this one, he massively failed, as evidenced by the fruit that his generations produced. Being invested in your sons to do what you could not do sounds selfless and godly. It's like, no, I'm working late. I'm, hard, I'm working hard to give you what, you know, to set you up and give you everything that you need. Solomon wrote Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Solomon wrote this. This speaks not of Solomon when he departed from it. It speaks of what the, the discipleship effort that David put in actually building Solomon and not just simply building the temple. In Solomon's life, he evidently departed from it. There is a concern that must be shown for the future generations and not for your next generation, but for the future generations. 
what that looks like is that you don't just labor to give your son and pass to your son what was treasured to you because at, by doing so, you're actually, actually just getting all the glory. It's your, it's your next generation. You can see it. You can touch it. You're working for it. You're laboring. Actually, you can say, you know what? I conquered all these kingdoms, and I'm giving you all these possessions, right? It's my work, and I'm giving it to you. But how much are we working to instill this love for the expansion of the kingdom now and also in the generations to come? come you know, the proof of this happening in this house is that we are here, and one of our fathers is not. The proof that we have had good teaching is that sons of a father have grown to have equal concern for their brothers and sisters in the next generation that the father originally had. This is our way of life. Not only that, but we stand on this stage as evidence that we have worked to instill the same concern in the generations to come. Carlos has been blessed with four daughters. Don't ask me to say their names. <laughs> and a son. He's had to fight through death and sickness to receive his promise. Yet, he still takes the time to teach your children in Sunday school. And we can see the joy evidently on his face when he does the blessing for the children. The fight for the generations that he had to wear, the war he had to wage did not assuage his concern for your children. It did not assuage his concern for the generations after him to succeed and to carry the same concern for the generations after them. Gabe, on the other hand, this blessing of his own children is still in the works. But we currently possess the substance of that which we cannot see yet. However, that has not prevented this man of God to work for the generations coming after him as they come to his own house. And he just gives up everything that he has. His time, his comfort, and everything, his money, and everything that he has. Not only for them, but also for the children of his teammates. He's working for the generations without regard of what that means to him or the Stevens name by that regard. He's working for your generations. He's working for you, men of God, and for the children that you will produce. He has a selfless pursuit of the kingdom of God, and that is what it looks like to work for the perpetual generations to come. This is not about your next generation or your little baby. This is about what is coming and how you're devoting yourself to see them advance. We are also sanctified in trust and rest. going to broach on a subject here that made me want to climb under my desk and repent as we talked about it. The Sabbath. What a wonderful subject. Our Father has set apart a day as holy after finishing his work. After. After finishing his work, he rested. He still didn't sleep, though. Plug in those Sunday naps. 
Regarding a day as holy was only to be granted to you because you labored for six days to complete all of your work. It is not granted as another day to slack off. As a matter of fact, God knew that the work that he gave us would weary us throughout the week and that it would take sweat and tears. So he appointed a day, not for laziness, but for you to, do, to devote yourself to the work that he gives you, which is the work we should want to be doing anyways. I'm going to be perfectly frank with you guys. I know this teaching about the Sabbath, and it's one of our foundational teachings in the church. And I've refused to call the time I take with my wife at the end of the week a Sabbath because I know we do not do what you should be doing on a Sabbath. I've known that this was such an important part of God's creation that I wasn't going to insult him by saying what I did on my day off from work was a Sabbath. And as we're going through these things, we can get six, but you still end up like David and Solomon. We must have all seven. It's not an option. It is what built this ministry. Come on. And when we're considering putting in six actual days of work, we only have five-day work weeks. Yeah. Everything about our culture is designed to have just a little bit more rest, a little bit more comfort, a little bit more folding of the hands than God ever intended for us or ever would be good for us. I was convicted today that I knew I should have been more productive at my job, but I stayed up kind of late working on a sermon, and I need to study for it. And I'm walking into this message with you guys knowing that I let a sermon be the excuse to not put in my six days of work. This has to be cultivated out of me, and be honest, I don't think I'm the only one in here that when you look at this, we have to put in our six days work so that we get to do the work that we want to be doing on the seventh. Man, Isaiah 58 verse 13. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." The Sabbath, the day of rest, was, was meant to be a day in which we delight in the Lord. <laughs> was meant to be a day yes. that is set apart not to do as we please, but instead a day that we honor by devoting ourselves to not speak worthless and idle words. Like a particularly holy day, a particularly sanctified day, that, that if, if you had messed up the rest of the week, this was the day to devote yourself to only holy work, to only holy things, to only saying things that produce fruit, that carry on the will of your Father. If there was a day that you missed this week, then that day would be your day to sanctify yourself and be sanctified by rest of your own works as you actually devote yourself to the sanctification and the work of God. John 5.17 says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This happened on the Sabbath, by the way. He would not stop doing what? 
He would not stop doing good while still resting. He was resting from his own work and his work, the work that he saw in the Father, that's what he would do on the Sabbath. So let's, let's recap this with uh, our slide again. Light bearers. This, sorry, this is a ministry pattern from creation. Let us reiterate this one more time. This is how this ministry has been built. This is how your fathers in the faith have walked out this way of life. They are light bearers, warriors, cultivators, signs that testify that you can look to and be encouraged by. Complex and diverse. Not a single-handed tool, but one that works in many trades. Generational ministers who are actually sanctified in trust and rest as they devote themselves to the holy work of God. We know that this is what the Father is causing us to rise up in. However, as excited as we are, we know that we have lacked in all of these. But we also know the solution. And the pastors brought it up on Sunday. The solution gets very exciting. The solution in Peshat terms is that you volunteer yourself for correction in righteousness. That's the solution. You know how I've seen this solution in our fathers? The first time that I got to LCM, the sermon that was being preached, or sorry, even the sermon that I watched from a few years ago when I got there, is a sermon that said that if anybody comes in and is not able to correct me from the Word of God, then I've lost my mind and my place of authority. That is a man in authority speaking that he will honor anyone that comes and gives him the word of God. Regardless of whether you're newly born again or the most mature man of God. This man teaches you that when you're in there to know how to truly succeed in being a husband, he tells you how he's failed for the past 10 years. And so he opens up and tells you about the past failures and that's the last thing that you would expect. And then, not only that, he also opened up, opens up his life that you would see his failures real time. That you would see his struggles real time. So that you wouldn't see a, a fluffy picture of what a marriage looks like. But he actually opens up his life to the extent that you're in his kitchen, in his living room, in his study, in his bedroom. Everywhere you can see the man of God that he has been and he is. You can see how his wife acts. You can see how his children do. You can see them. You can see the children as signs and symbols as well. They volunteer themselves for correction and righteousness. They don't run away from correction and righteousness. This is the path to become these ministers. Let's go to Hebrews 12. We'll just go through verses 7 and 8. Beyond the basics when you get there. We are working. We're working to a close. We're descending. So everybody can take a breath. We're talking about solutions now, not problems. Endure your suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you do not experience discipline, something all sons have shared in, then you are illegitimate and are not sons. Endure suffering as discipline. Suffering for doing evil is not commendable, 
Suffering for doing good is commendable. However, suffering is good for you regardless. However, this message is not about you being condemned. It's about us being perfected. Suffering, regardless of how it came, is good for us. Amen. It is the hand of our good father proclaiming that we are his legitimate sons. Sons that are being raised up to follow in the pattern of our own father. Bitterness towards suffering is evidence of a lacking identity as a son. It highlights our insecurity as sons. Thinking, my God, he hates me. <laughs> He's against me now because I'm experiencing difficulty. It also highlights our desires to show how our lives are more presentable than um, making our lives holy. It highlights our desire for comfort instead of perfection. Proverbs 12.1 that we won't get into, but all of us have said to our kids at some point. Instead, we must learn to lean into suffering. Leaning into suffering, not into your own arm. If we want to mature, then we must learn to lean into suffering. If we want to remove bitterness, then we must learn to lean into suffering. Suffering is the sandpaper that makes real ministry gems. When we don't lean into suffering, we're displaying resentment. And the easiest way to explain how resentment shows up in suffering is the action of pushing away. When we resent suffering, then we're trusting in our own strength to bring about our own desired outcome, which causes us to be immature and bitter about it. I wish that situation had worked out differently. Because we decided to lean on our own arm and resent the suffering. When we resent the suffering the Lord has placed in our lives, we trust in our own arm to achieve our desired outcome. But we have a way to identify where you hold resentment. Where am I perpetually immature and where, what am I bitter about? And when we can identify those two things, we can figure out where we resent the Lord's suffering and we can cut it off. The cure for both our immaturity and our bitterness is suffering. If we lean into suffering, then we can know that we will become exemplary, exemplary Christians in all seven attributes. We don't have to settle for one or two. We don't have to settle for six. You can be everything that the fathers of this ministry are and more if we learn to lean into our suffering. So let's talk for a moment about what is suffering. Well, it's every God-ordained, uncomfortable situation you have in your life. Amen. It's the difficulties at home. It's the difficulties at work. It's the difficulties of doing good. We're going to continue in this list, but we don't talk about it this way. But one of my mashlomkas was, I realize I resent being in my own house because it's noisy. I'm bitter about my house because it's loud. And I found myself lacking in discernment in every one of our step three decisions. I found myself perpetually wanting to figure out how to get out of my own house and disliking my teammates' kids. That's an area I have resentment because I resent the suffering. 
It's every uncomfortable situation. It's every bit of sandpaper that you feel on your shoulder when you lean into it just a little bit. It's the internal struggles for holiness. These are all areas of God-ordained suffering that if we resent it or try to alleviate the how uncomfortable it is, we are just causing ourselves to become more bitter and more immature. But if we look for those two areas, we can identify them, cut them off, and exemplify every area. And it, where we need to look for is the areas that you would just rather find a slightly different way to do it. Where I'm home, but I'm not really home. Where I'm doing my job, but I'm not talking to that one. Turn full face like they used to teach us in football and drive into that. In whichever way that you are most uncomfortable, that is where your maturity and your growth is going to be. This is how we learn to do this. We're going to talk about Joshua here. Yeah, we're going to talk about this real quickly. Joshua, he was the leader of God's people to go and enter and conquer and inherit the promised land. Joshua, he... He went and he conquered Jericho. And it was a massive victory. God had told him, hey, be strong and courageous. I will be with you. I will give you the land. And, and he was encouraged and this looked good. It's like, I don't need discipline, yes! right? I don't need to grow because God is with me and I'm going to conquer the land. And the proof is, look at, that, look at the walls of Jericho. They're destroyed. So he didn't realize that in his excitement about destroying Jericho... Something happened. He well, felt as a leader. Was. He felt as a leader and Achan took that which was precious, holy, and sanctified for destruction. He took of that. And so the, he felt as a leader and the congregation felt as a congregation that follows. Joshua became bitter. You will read this on your own in Joshua 7 verse 7. But Joshua became bitter with God. Why have you brought us into this land? Why have we crossed the Jordan? Why is this happening to us? Only blessings in my own perceived mind should be happening because you're with us. This is the only thing that we should be receiving from God. No suffering, just blessings, just victories, just conquering, just going after the walls and just destroying the enemies. And Joshua did not realize that this was the process in which he was being formed as a leader of God's people. And God's people were going to learn a precious lesson before they got into that promised land. After they deal with that sin, they bring it to the light and they give glory to God. Then what happens is that they rose up and they defeated I. They did defeat I. Not only they did so, the peoples and the enemies of God that we were talking about in the beginning took notice of it. They took so much notice that the Gibeonites, they were like, you know, we're going to fake this. This guy's going to kill us. These people is going to kill us. And it's written that they know. I'm going to read this. Joshua 9, 24 says, They answered Joshua because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you, because you, because of you, and did this thing. So the, the tribes and the peoples of the land, they're scared that actually the sons of God are rising 
They're coming with God and they're taking up their places as one unified body. And they're coming to conquer the land. And what is happening is that God's enemies are actually turning themselves in because this is happening. Not only that, then those who did not want to turn themselves in, they gather up. You got the kings of the south, you got the kings of the north, east and west. They all come together. They come together and they come to battle against the people of God who are there to conquer. That's what happens when we as a people take up our positions, our place and our authority. That's when we rise up in the seven qualities that we just talked about. As a people, not as a single individual. And we go out to conquer the land that God has provided for us. So let's go to our three last passages and finish this thing. Deuteronomy 32. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. You know that God has an inheritance? Joshua was not just fighting for his own inheritance. He was not just fighting for the inheritance of the people. He was fighting for, the, for God to receive his own inheritance. And the inheritance is his people. If that doesn't cause you to have some zeal about working and laboring at these seven attributes, about having zeal, about rising up as a better son of God, as a better family, as unifying the congregation. If you, you we have to see, we have to give the lamb the reward of his suffering. We have to give our father the inheritance that he paid for. And that causes zeal to rise up inside of us and get to work. Joshua 1.6, be strong and courageous, for you shall give these people the inheritance of the land that I swore to their fathers I would give them. As brothers like Yeshua, we must work, embrace discipline and suffering, and go out to conquer the land so that our father receives his inheritance and then our brothers receive their inheritance as well. Joshua 14.12, now therefore... Give me this hill country that the Lord promised me on that day. For you yourself heard then that the Anakim were there with great and fortified cities. Perhaps the, with, the Lord, with the Lord's help, I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. As Yeshua, we must work, embrace discipline and suffering, and go out to conquer that inheritance that the Father has promised us. What you have from the beginning is that God has an inheritance. We as a people have an inheritance, and every man and woman in this place has an inheritance. That is the reason why you put your boots on. That is the reason why you lean into suffering and discipline rather than push it out. Because we're not just working aimlessly. We're working for our father to receive his inheritance. We're working for our people to receive his, their inheritance. And we're working for the mountain that he has promised to me. There is an inheritance at a place here. There's an inheritance that I'm going for. That we are going for. And that is what we're rising up to. We're rising in the character and the responsibility that God had at creation. So that this inheritance would come about. So let's stand up on your feet. Church, there's an inheritance in front of us. And what we want everyone in the room to feel is that the time is short. The time is now. You can, you will 
and we have to. This is not an option. This is what we signed up for. And we're more than up to the task. But we don't have forever to do it. I'm going to let my brother finish it out here. But that sense of urgency, I think, is something that I would, if I could leave you with anything, would be that we must, we can, and we don't have all day. So you've heard us preach for an hour and 16 minutes, which we did not plan to. We're sorry for that. But we're asking you today to engage with the fact that not only is the time short, the fathers in the faith that have invested so much in you, their time is also short here. And not only do you have a responsibility to the work that they've done in your lives, you have a responsibility to the Father of Heaven who apportioned them to you. And we have a responsibility to go conquer the land for our father, the land for our brothers, and the land for our families. And we either get mixed up with the darkness or we actually expose it. We either embrace the suffering and the discipline and we realize that a good father is bringing beautiful, refining moments that are meant to produce awesome fruits, not only in me, but in the people around us. We are not going to push away from this. So as you heard us today, I'm sure that things were highlighted in your heart. I mean, you shouldn't let them pass by. It's not about coming to the altar. It's about coming to repentance. It's about realizing that the time is short, like our brother said. It's realizing that you were put in this place, not flippantly. If you've been sitting in these chairs, just warming them up, you have to wake up because the time is short. Because that's not the reason why the Father purchased you. And He didn't just purchase you for your family as well. He purchased you for the families around you. He purchased you so that He would receive His inheritance. So let's pray. And you do what you must do. Father, you are precious. And like the song, Father, we ask you to burn everything that only you may remain, Father. That only you would be left in our character, in our thoughts, in our actions. That only you would be the reflection. That when you look at us, Father, you would see your reflection. You would see sons, Father, that are proud of being yours, of being disciplined and discipled by you. Father, we repent for our arm that pushes you away when you're trying to do something good in us. And we ask you to increase the heat. We ask you to increase the refinement. Because we're not here for our own comfort. We're not here for our own priorities we're here father to do your will and then be called unto your presence and be called good and faithful servants that did and accomplished the work that you gave us father we want to be able to see light when there's darkness we want to be able to cultivate father when we don't see only but a seed father we want to rise up in your character that you've demonstrated 
and also in the character of our fathers in this house that have laid a clear example for us to see them and be symbols and signs for us to follow father may you be glorified may you be glorified father by how we draw near to you not for blessings but for your character to be instilled in us father